Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description. Welcome to Girl on the Gov, the podcast, breaking down politics as we know it and removing all the bullshit. (laughs) Because politics needed a (laughs) rebrand. Happy Wednesday, everyone. Welcome back to Girl on the Gov, the podcast. Back with a fresh epi and coming off a fresh hot take from TikTok because there is a debate happening. And if you are not aware of this debate, mm. the debate is a would you rather, and that would you rather is <laughs> really building this up. <laughs> would you rather date a man wh- who wears Crocs and socks every day? Every day? Every day. Right? All day, every day. Every day. It's or, like with suits. It's with a tux. It's with literally oh. every outfit you can imagine. He goes on runs in the Crocs oh. and the socks. Okay. Or a man that voted for Trump twice. Okay, so I have, like, a lot of commentary, which I kind of addressed in, like, one of my comment responses. But I feel like it didn't give enough, like, enough detail. Slash, I did not realize how bad at comment responses I was on TikTok. But someone pointed out was, like, aren't these, like, the same guy? And, okay, here was, like, the thing. When I, OG, was thinking of, like, Crocs and Socks... First of all, like in any fashion, like I am not a Croc fan, although I will admit I did own a pair in like, I don't know, late elementary school, middle school. Yeah, I think I did in middle school. I like wore them with soccer. Yeah. After soccer. Right? Yeah. They really like like shower shoes. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Post Khalid feet. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Lovely. Exactly. Um, But like I was thinking more of like, how you know like the fashiony guys like the soho grunge like vibe or like they're trying to make like crocs trendy and then there's like right the crocs, crocs kind of came back recently yeah but they're i think it was because the they like, did a they did an amazing marketing job and they just got a bunch of influencers to like act like crocs were a thing again and then everyone was like are crocs a thing again it's just the power of influence you in guys book. power um, of influence but it's hard to respond to how many 648 comments of most of people saying we had a few trump people in there but 98 percent of people saying absolutely crocs and socks is that even a question but nothing was better than the man who stitched who stitched um you and showed us his crocs and his socks that he was wearing probably honestly like the fact the idea of like that man whoever he is whoever you are out there saw that video and was like I'm literally wearing Crocs and socks right now. What the fuck? He's like, he's like fuck me. He's like, you caught me. You, how did you know? Yeah. Like, you literally... Yeah. No, it was iconic. And also the fact that he had, like, pineapple socks, too. I was like, dude, you got it. This is a fresh sock moment. Like, at least, you know, if he's going to go Crocs and socks, I'm glad he's bringing some flair to the sock style. We're not yeah. just going, like, 
classic old school, I was about to call them tidy whities but that is not the right thing. Like, you know, tube socks, yeah. tidy whities and tube socks. I feel like those go hand in hand. But you know what I mean? It wasn't just that type of vibe. He was like, no, I'm fresh, I'm fun, and I'm bringing out the pineapples. So, sir. Bring out the pineapples. Is this how I yeah, find my whole husband? Look. Like, so anyways, moving <laughs> right along. But you guys, if you guys also have some like would you rather's that we can, oh, you yeah. know, throw on the on TikTok, let us know because people are absolutely loving this one. Let me tell you, pretty insane. It's, it's a gold mine. The, um, the amount of people who were triggered by this and decided to put in their two cents. So there's that on that. You can go check that TikTok out with all of our other amazing TikToks and share them and make sure everybody knows about them and you know just yeah. But sharing before is we get into, yep, yeah, good, Sam. <laughs> before we get into this episode, we have some housekeeping. We have some sweeping to do. And mm-hmm. we're going to start with letting you guys know that you can get four bottles of wine for $29.95 with Wink. If you're 21 at, plus. If you're 21 plus at the Wink in our bio, um, they deliver these wines, these delicious wines, straight to your door. They have very cute branding that looks cute on your shelves, and they are so good. Like, so good. And four bottles of wine for $20.95 is an absolute steal, and you guys should definitely take advantage. So go head to that link in the episode description here and go get your wines and let us know how you like them. They have all, all types, all flavors. Go get your wines. Do you want to tell everyone about Break the Love? Oh, I can definitely do that. No problemo. Okay, so for our tennis enthusiasts, tennis lovers, tennis curious. Or not. This is for you. Or not. Maybe. I guess tennis curious, yeah. Yeah. You've never been tennis tennis curious, curious. but now you are. Mostly. It could be because you just like the outfits. It could be because you want to do a sport. Break the Love is an amazing startup that we are partnered with. We have a tennis club just for Girl in the Govers. We really still need a better name for <laughs> us. But regardless, know, the Girl in the Govers, dear Lord have mercy. But this club uh, will be hosting different events. So we'll be having tennis events with pros and all that stuff. So we're in the planning phase of those now. So what you're going to want to do is join the club right now. Yep, 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 yep. Go to that link. Click on it. Sign up. Takes like less than a minute. Add yourself to the club, and we will be sharing information on those events coming up ASAP Rocky. Go sign up at the link, not in our bio, in our episode description. And then, you know, there's no commitment by signing up. And then you guys, whenever an event does happen, which we are working on, then you can be notified. And if you want to help set one up in your city, it doesn't matter where you're at, so let us know. But if you just go sign up right now, there that will be very helpful in us kind of deciding when and where to do this event. So go sign up and then we'll, you know, keep everyone posted on when when stuff starts to brew. But if you can sign up, that'd be super helpful. So go to the link in our episode description. Brew just made me really want coffee. So thank you for that. Other housekeeping, real quick, join our brand ambassador program. There's also no requirements to do that. And you can join um, 
our community. And we will just be continuing to share and continue this political conversation. And we also provide networking opportunities, resume boosters, and there's no time requirement or anything like we said. So go check it out. You can go to girlonthegov.com and learn all about it and sign up there. And then we also have an internship for the summer and for the fall. If you are a college student and are looking to get college credit for an internship, this internship covers political research, social media, marketing, and PR. So go check it out. That's at girlinthegub.com slash careers. And yeah. And then the other just little tiny, you know, Easter egg moment we're going to leave you guys with. Merch is coming back, you guys. Merch is coming and we are currently in the works. So if you guys have any requests of things you want to come back from the last merch run, or if you have requests of what you would like to see, you know, new stuff you would like to see be it designs or you know you want to see a hat you want to see a tote or whatever you want let us know you can email us at info at girlonthegov.com or dm us there's tons of ways to, to contact us so let us know but merch is indeed coming back so get ready but that is it that is it which is a goddamn miracle because i have stained all of my sweaters. I know. every I know. last one Me of too. them half of its makeup Half of it's coffee. It's well, that's why we can't wear white, but like also white is so cute. It's just such a battle I for love me. White. But anyways, tangent aside, merch is coming and now we are ready to get into this episode. So can you introduce our guest before everyone turns us off? This is a common problem we have. Sorry, everyone. <gasps> Sorry, we're chatty, Kathy's. And it'll only continue on this episode because we have a really awesome interview with Warda Khalid. She's the founder of Polygon. This episode is talking about Islamophobia, policy around Islamophobia, some of the things that are up and running in the old DC area of things. So without further ado, here is Warda. Alrighty. Well, we are super excited to have you on the show. We have so much to talk about today. Let us just say we have been dying to talk about this topic, but before we do, We always love to give a little bit of background, how our guests, of course, got into politics. It's always a story. It's always a journey. We want to hear about yours and you also, too, for background, the founder and president of Polygon. So can you tell us how you got there? Can you tell us how you got into politics? Give us sort of this journey moment. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, by the way. I'm very excited to be on your podcast and excited that you're doing this podcast. I love to see more women in politics. So Thank you for what you're doing and thanks for having me. My journey, like you said, is not linear. I actually started my career in accounting. So I'm a CPA, certified public accountant. Oh my God, we need you. We need you. I will not be doing your taxes. Let me just put a disclaimer. You're like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with that life. But yeah, I was working in oil and gas accounting in Houston, you know, which is a big industry there and had a nice set career. And, you know, outside of that, I really felt a calling to do more. And kind of even before I started college, I always had an idea of like going and working at the UN or making policy in DC. I didn't really know how to get there. Nobody from or, you know my neighborhood or my school or anybody really did that. And so I thought I was going to go to law school. And I that's why law school doesn't really care what you major in. So I was like, well, let me do business because that's a good major to fall back on. And then I was good at it and I did accounting and I got my CPA and I was set. And then, you know, probably like nine months into the job, I felt like, hmm, this is not really what I wanted to do. Why don't I go back to what I actually wanted to do? And hence came the quarter life crisis of figuring out what is it that I want to do with my life? 
How do I get there? So outside of work, I was doing a lot of volunteering. I was writing a religion blog for the Houston Chronicle called Young American Muslim that covered my daily life, also my perspective on policy um, and national events, current events. And this was all kind of in the back frame of rising Islamophobia around President Obama's election. So you guys may remember he was facing a lot of attacks for his race, allegedly being a Muslim, as if that was a bad thing, allegedly being Arab, as if that was a bad thing. And, you know, that led to an increase in Islamophobia in the media, in the political rhetoric, and also seeing a rise in hate crimes. And so for me, being Texan and Muslim, both, I felt like this was this gap that I could bridge based on my own lived experiences. So that's how I started blogging. And I was also volunteering at a local civil rights organization. I was doing some interfaith work. And finally, I decided, you know, I'm spending all my spare time outside of work and doing this. I need to go and pursue what it is that I want to do. And I think because I learned all that while doing that, I was able to really decide like, okay, I want to do foreign policy because foreign policy affects domestic policy. So if you look at the wars that we're in right now in Iraq and Afghanistan, that is all impacting how people, how Muslims and Arabs are being treated abroad and how they're being treated in the U.S. and the U.S.'s perception of them. And we had our own internal conflicts like calling French people French fries and all that fun stuff. I don't know if you remember, but it really affects the everyday rhetoric, even though it's people try to say that it's two distinct things, but they're very much interrelated. So then I went to grad school in New York, Columbia SIPA. I studied international affairs with uh, a focus on human rights, humanitarian policy and the Middle East. And that is really what started me on my career. And I did shortly after I came to D.C. and worked at a Quaker lobby, which we can talk about later. But that was my first experience working at a lobby and learning how to advocate. And from there, it's it's been a journey. A journey indeed. Quite the resume, Chef's Kiss. Like, wow. <laughs> Thank you. Circling back to Polygon, can you give us the rundown here? What What is the focus of work? What is your day-to-day like? Give us all of that. Yeah, so Polygon's kind of tagline, I guess you could say, is amplifying Muslim voices in Congress. And really what it focuses on, training, education, and advocacy, or the acronym T. And <laughs> we all like T. And basically, <laughs> like, yeah. And what we're doing is we are teaching a population of three to eight million people and and allies. We don't know how many Muslims there are in the U.S., but that's an estimate how to engage with their member of Congress. When we did a study back in 2019, we found that Muslims were the least engaged faith group when it came to reaching out to the member of Congress. Only 17 percent had reached out in the last year, which was the lowest of all faith groups. And I believe the next highest faith group was double that amount. So there clearly was much room for improvement. And I think that it directly ties to that Islamophobia that I was talking about earlier, where people get away with saying nasty things, whether it's to Muslim members of Congress or just regular Joes and saying these things in the media because there are no political repercussions. There is nobody who's going to, you know, end your movie or if that you have a crazy movie that's, I can't remember that sniper movie that came out. Um, uh, you probably remember the why name. Why do I want to say sniper? But I think Bradley Cooper was yeah, in it. Yeah, Bradley Cooper was in and it. And I didn't watch it, but I now remember I'm gonna, it's reading. going to bother me. Yeah, and I remember reading reviews after, and people were like, yeah, I just want to get out and kill an Arab, or I got out of the theater and wanted to kill no. a Muslim. And it's like, why are you allowed to make movies like that yeah, where you no. dehumanize an entire group of people? That's not okay. So this is all tied. Political rhetoric, media. It's American and, Sniper. Thank you, American Sniper. Okay, we I have the title. There. <laughs> so 
yeah, so that's basically, you know, what we're doing. We're building political power through congressional advocacy. We're teaching people to hold their members of Congress accountable. Obviously, the skills that we teach can be applied at the local level, at the state level as well. And, you know, we're teaching people to go beyond a photo op where they ask a picture or they ask for a picture or they donate to a campaign and they don't ask for anything else after. No. Why are you not following up with them? Why are you not holding them accountable? And so this is what Polygon aims to do. It's amazing. And so true. I mean, there's I feel like a lot of movies, honestly, like that, too. It just, yeah. It's, and it's very OK to just do that. And yeah, why? it becomes like the culture and, and the entire dialogue around a certain type of person and it's yeah it definitely should not exist in that way how, how really does it operate too just for like people who aren't fully aware of like how an organization like this really operates on like a on a day-to-day and really how it how it achieves these goals like I, i'm so curious great question so we're still on the smaller side we launched in january of 2017 which was right before president trump took office so it was very timely and timely people wanted to get engaged <laughs> and so even though I'd been planning it since like, you know, late 2014, it just so happened that we launched at that time. So people were excited about it, which is good. Yeah. But we're a small team. We have um, staff, we have fellows, we have interns, and then we have a board that kind of manages everything. And I sit on that board um, as a board president and kind of, you know, watch the operations and we watch things, overall strategy we plan. But basically, the way we function is we we have a strategic plan where we decide, hey, what is it that what are the top issues that we want to talk about this year? So right now, we've really focused our issue areas to civil rights, Islamophobia, and social, racial, and economic justice. So when COVID hit, we were doing a lot of work on the COVID relief bills. When the Muslim ban hit, we were doing a lot of work on that. Right now, we're doing a lot of work on democracy promotion and making sure people have voting rights. So we do, when I say we do this work, that can involve going to coalition meetings, signing onto letters, supporting and writing bills and resolutions in Congress, having panels and public statements, press releases to teach people about what's going on. We have explainer videos and documents. So right now with the Senate, sorry, the Supreme Court justice being nominated, we have like an explainer a document that we used back when RBG left the, or when she passed away and and left that seat open. So we talked about like, hey, how does a Senate nomination process work? Where does the new nomination come from? How does it work? So I really teach the team to spoon feed information to people who maybe have had no exposure, very little exposure to Congress before, because Mm -hmm. it's a very well-oiled machine and it's intimidating to get involved and know how things work. So We train people on how to do an office visit, how to do a town hall meeting, how to do a phone call. We provide a weekly newsletter called Hill Happenings where we break down in bite-sized pieces. Here's what happened on the Hill. Here's what people are talking about. So really so people can learn. So a lot of it is education, some direct advocacy on the Hill too that we can do as a 501c3 where we meet with members of Congress and their staff and talk about issues that the community cares about. And then obviously with the trainings, that I mentioned, the Hill office is what am I missing? Yeah, and the educational resources. So that's really our day-to-day, how we function. And the idea next is to start building our grassroots space so that when we go to an office, we can say, hey, we represent X number of constituents in this city and they all really are passionate about this issue. So that's the next thing. That's amazing. It really is so complicated. Like, I know there's like people who get elected into the House or the Senate and show up and don't even know how a single procedure could even work or any of the rules or whatever. It's so complicated. So they rely a a lot on their staff. I think people don't know that about it. So I worked on the Hill for a year 
And I don't think people know how much the staff do and, oh. and how much they actually run things and they write run things. things and do they things. They run shit. They definitely um, run yeah. shit. Yeah, your, your representative is really a face for the most part in a lot of ways. So, it's yeah. True. yeah. That's, but, and I'm always very impressed when members of Congress actually sit down to read things themselves or work on things themselves. You'd think that'd be like <laughs> job requirement. Yeah. You'd think that'd just be the norm, but it's actually like, oh, I'm so impressed when they sit down and read a document. Oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they think it's tweet worthy. They're like, oh my God, guys, I read the oh, whole yeah. tax bill. Look at me. They're like, hey, wait, can you get it? Yeah. Can you take a video <laughs> of me reading this bill? <laughs> for the content, you know, for the content. But I yeah. do have a question about what are the things that you guys do? I honestly, I feel like I just never thought about like the procedure, speaking of procedures behind it. When an organization has a letter, for example, and has other organizations sign on to it, how does that mm -hmm. process work? Like, is it like one organization decides, okay, like this is an issue we're gonna speak on, we're writing this letter, and then they reach out to other organizations and say, hey, like essentially pitch them. Like, is there a process for that? And also what is usually sort of the impact that happens when organizations come together and do that? Very good question. So it can happen in a multitude of ways. The first is what you mentioned, where one organization kind of takes the lead, writes the language, and then asks everybody else to sign on to it. And that can work if the issue is pretty broad and people don't have a lot of nuanced, conflicting views on it. The problem happens when there are kind of nuanced views and then people aren't comfortable signing on to a statement because maybe they don't agree with one sentence. So then what you could do is try to have everybody kind of contribute to a statement and say like, hey, everybody, give us a quote that one of your leadership can give. Those are usually easier to get done because everybody kind of says their thing. They have a common theme and then they can send it out. If they try to write a letter together, that takes longer, but you will end up with probably a letter that more people agree with. Unfortunately, things move very quickly in the media cycle and the political cycle. So if you're not on it, as soon as the issue breaks, it can be very difficult. So sometimes the easiest thing to do is just for everybody to write their own press releases and send it out. But if you are able to have some time to work on something, so I'll give an example, like the No Ban Act that we worked on, that was very much a cumulative process that was working with uh, a Senate office, a House office, you had advocacy groups, all working together, deciding the language. I was working at Church World Service at the time, which is a refugee settlement agency. So I was kind of bringing that angle and, and my staff at Polygon were bringing kind of making sure the civil rights angle was included for Muslims. So everybody comes in with their own thing. Religious yeah. freedom people came, came in with their own agenda. So everybody brings in their own angle, comes together, works with a staffer to write it. And so that's how that bill actually got created. So it really depends on what the vehicle is, which determines the process. Yeah. Wild. Okay. Clarity found. <laughs> Love it. Yes. Speaking of clarity, we have a number of stupid questions in our I have a stupid question segment. So we will move to get some clarity on these. We mentioned this before a little bit, and that is the Muslim ban. Can you explain what that actually is? Yes. So in January 2017, President Donald Trump announced an executive order uh, that was banning all refugees and banning people, immigrants from several Muslim majority countries. So that in and of itself sort of became known as a quote unquote Muslim ban or the Muslim travel ban. And basically what it was doing was it was using an immigration law, the INA, the Immigration and Nationality Act to ban a certain contingency of people. And so that is what allowed them to use that. They were saying that it was a national security risk, that it was a threat to the country, that 
people from those countries could be terrorists. President Trump used the 9-11 attacks as justification for the ban, and it, which didn't make sense at all, but that's what he used. And Nothing and, he says really makes sense. <laughs> Fact. Yeah. Fact. Fact. And so it was, you know, it was heartbreaking. What happened was that yeah. people were separated from their families, from their loved ones for no reason. These were not terrorists. These were grandmas, grandpas aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters, husbands and wives that were separated. And mm -hmm. I saw the firsthand impacts of that working at a refugee resettlement agency where we had uh, one client, Afkab Hussein was his name, I remember, and he had never even met his son who was born in a refugee camp in oh Somalia while he was in the US. He was resettled to the US, his wife was supposed to follow on the next flight and never made it because of the ban. There's so many stories like that. There are so many people that are still impacted by the ban, even though President Biden repealed it on day one. So it it's a very, you know, it's a very tragic thing, not to mention unjust and yeah. infuriating that a country that is supposed to welcome all people and has a Statue of Liberty saying, giving, giving your tired and your poor mm -hmm. is banning people based on their religion or the country that they come from. It's just so completely un-American, bigoted, and Islamophobic, yeah. and that is the Muslim ban. Yeah. I was also, that was going to be actually one of my follow-up questions was like, what are some of the like kind of residual effects that have come from that? I mean, yeah, the ban has been lifted. Biden did that almost immediately, right? But what, where is it now? What's the status of some of these families that, that were separated? Yeah, it, it affected the families where they still haven't been able to reunify. There were visa applications that were stopped and blocked while that happened, while the ban was in effect. And people have been told to reapply and start over, which is a very long, long process. So people are still separated. Oh my God. Yeah. So there's many people that are still affected. It very much affected the mental health of people, even in the U.S. I saw some studies that said that, you know, like hospitalizations and doctor's visits for mental health issues increased as a result of people being so stressed out about not being able to visit with their family. Yeah. You saw couples that weren't even able to get married because of the ban. There are so many stories of how the ban impacted people. And it's just so sad and unnecessary, especially in this global world where people are traveling all the time. I mean, pre-pandemic, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, we never thought that you could be banned just because of the country that you happen to live in or the religion that you follow. And especially, I think the refugee ban was especially disheartening mm -hmm. because the refugee program is a bipartisan program. It's not, uh, you know, a controversial program at all. The government has supported it for decades. And, you know, to completely ban refugees and say that they are a national security threat is not only false, they go through a very intense vetting process before they come, but it's just so un-American. So it, it really impacted their mental health, too. People were left in dire conditions for a long time. They still are in dire conditions, you know, when they could have been resettled in the U.S. and building a new life. Yeah, wait, sorry, really quick, another question. Was the lifting of the ban also paired with like anything, like any type of policy or piece of legislation that can help transition those people like kind of back to where they were headed? And Yes, so there was some legislation that was introduced. So I think there was some diversity law, lottery visa legislation. There was another one called, I think it's called Protecting Our Allies or it has some name like that. I need to go look up the actual bill name, but it was about dealing with the residual effects of the visa, the visas that were not issued, the diversity visas that were backlogged, but those all haven't passed or anything yet. So they're still 
kind of in the, I guess, the congressional process, I guess you could say it, where they're waiting to either be passed through committee or come to the floor for a vote. But yeah, there's still, people have tried now because they haven't been able to pass the No Ban Act in the Senate, they're trying now to piecemeal and pick pieces out of it that would be necessary in order to, you know, deal with the residual effects. So what I'll say is the Keeping Our Promise Act is one of the bills that we're working on that is, it's to help the people that were, the tens of thousands of people around the world that are still unable to come to the U.S. because of the bans, the Muslim bans decimation of the diversity visa program. So it would open the, reopen the diversity visa process to about 40,000 winners that were impacted by the previous administration's bans. So instead of being denied because of COVID-19 travel restrictions and the Muslim travel ban, they would have the opportunity to be able to still come to the U.S. and instead of having to start all over in the process. Gotcha. That one is still like tape not moving. Yeah. So that one has been introduced in the House, but it has not passed the House yet. Okay. Noted. This is like a question like a little bit outside of like the box of this, but related. That made me think is like, you know, opening up a certain amount of visas. Is there like a way in which politicians decide like how many people from this place are allowed to come in? Like, I feel like it's like very weird to like quantify humanity personally. <laughs> yeah. But like, yes, obviously there is some process for it. I'm not saying I agree with it, but just like, wh- how does that happen? Like, um, what is that based on? Is anything? So the diversity a visa lottery is in fact a lottery. So a certain number of visas are given to a specific country and then they basically have to enter a process to try to get that spot or that one of that few spots. I'm not sure how the U.S. decides which countries have which spots. I think maybe that can change over time depending on the political climate, but I would have to check into that and see exactly how they set that. But I know that it's it's a long shot for somebody to come to the U.S., but it works. Interesting. The numbers game. Yeah. One that yes. I I have more and more questions about and I'm going to be deep on Google tonight with. So yes. and everyone listening, <laughs> get on Google. We're doing it. We're here for it. All right. Moving to our next question, which is what is Islamophobia? Islamophobia is like political rhetoric and anti-Muslim bigotry that is meant to demonize a particular faith and the people that follow that faith, as well as to hinder their civil and human rights. So that's really the impact of Islamophobia. So the word Islamophobia doesn't really capture that. That sounds like an irrational fear, which maybe some people have, but I don't think the majority of people have that fear. I think what they have is this kind of misconception and stereotype that Muslims are inherently violent or they're not American or they don't believe in the Constitution and that they want to harm Americans. You know, one phrase that people often use is, oh, they hate us for our freedoms, which is not true. But but, but that has been used to kind of stoke Islamophobia or Islamophobic actions. So, yeah, that's basically what Islamophobia is. Yeah. And we also wanted to ask, too, along these lines is what is com the Combating International Islamophobia Act, that's HR 5665, to get technical on everybody. So what is that and like what what is its goal? Yes. So that was a very recent bill that was introduced by Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Rep. Jan Schakowsky. So she's Muslim, sorry, Ilhan Omar's Muslim and Jan Schakowsky's Jewish. So it was kind of a interfaith bill that they created, but it's basically 
to compel the State Department to develop a more comprehensive approach to fighting rising Islamophobia and increase its capacity to monitor and confront state and non-state actors worldwide, basically to ensure a safer environment for American Muslims and Muslims around the world. So they do this in two ways. The bill would, one, establish an office to monitor and combat Islamophobia at the State Department that would be headed by a special envoy. And two, it would amend the Foreign Assistance Act and IRFA, IRFA to require annual reporting on Islamophobia that each foreign country takes and the steps that they take to combat it through educational programming or public awareness. I mean, the U.S. currently monitors and combats religious persecution internationally. And so this bill would extend that to include Islamophobia. Gotcha. Well, super. And the reason why they decided to do that is because, you know, over the years, Islamophobia has increased. And there was a study done in 2017 where 30 percent of Americans surveyed viewed Muslims in a negative light. So having these views and these misconceptions has been really detrimental because it causes anti-Muslim violence, anti-Muslim rhetoric, and you have horrible movies like American Sniper made. So having this bill would put some weight behind the effort to end Islamophobia and, you know, stop it from happening in countries around the world. Right. We do love when there's like an actual, like not just a U.S. situation, but one that obviously acknowledges the fact that the U.S. has impact worldwide. Yes. Which, yes. so we could go down some rabbit holes, but just to (laughs) like back it up a little bit, you mentioned you obviously increase in violence we you know usually that's considered sort of okay the laws in that category anti-hate you give just a little bit of like a description or definition as to like what anti-hate legislation is yeah anti-hate legislation really serves to combat these types of hate crimes that we see so when president trump was on the campaign trail and the other republican candidates on the campaign trail we saw actually the highest number of anti-muslim rhetoric and incidents since 9-11 and so that's how bad things had gotten where You see things where people are getting pushed into oncoming trains on the subway platforms, where women have their hijabs ripped off their head or getting violently assaulted. You see people being shot at because people mistook them for a Muslim. The very first victim of a hate crime after 9-11 was actually a sick man. He was wearing a turban, and I believe he was shot at a gas station because the person believed that he was Muslim. So This is something that has, I mean, obviously it was there before 9-11, but it it really has ramped up since then. And this kind of rhetoric really eggs it on. So anti-hate crime legislation really serves to put in protections for people, whether it's at the state level, national level or federal level, depending on how the bill is, is worded. But it's really to, you know, maybe increase monitoring for Islamophobic incidents, increased reporting, including training for police and other law enforcement on what it looks like and what, you know, how it can be perpetuated. So it includes all these different elements. And and the main goal is to protect people from these crimes that are occurring just because of their religious identity. Right. Well, kind of diving into this a little deeper and then also tying it into kind of like the work you do, can you kind of also explain, you know, connect the dots between the concepts and like these policies that we just talked about and like how the fund really goes after changing the status quo? And is there a particular bill you guys focus on? Is it broader? What are those efforts like in regards to like these concepts we just mentioned? 
Good question. So the way Congress works is sometimes one bill is stuck and it's not moving. So people try other different bills to get around it. So that's what I was explaining how the No Ban Act has been stuck right now. It's not passing the Senate. And it's very frustrating because you would think that not banning somebody based on religion would be something that you would unanimously want to support. But that's not how it happened. And even when it was voted on in the House, it was very much along partisan lines. So it's tough. So that's why they're breaking up into different pieces. So, for instance, I mentioned the Keeping Our Promise Act was a a side kind of bill that we can work on. There's also Lift the Bar Act tries to work on immigrant rights where you are giving them access to benefit programs like Medicaid, CHIP and SNAP by removing a five year bar or other barriers that deny critical care and aid to immigrants. So we'll work on legislation like that. Also, voting rights and democracy reform, like For the People Act, Freedom to Vote Act, a filibuster reform in order to people to give people access to the ballot so that they can, you know, voice their opinions and vote for these legislations and vote against, if they want, members who are supporting these harmful policies. And then, of course, the Combating International Assault and Phobia Act, which I just mentioned. So we have different legislative vehicles to try to get different pieces of the the puzzle it's very it's much more difficult to have one comprehensive bill that tackles all these items so these are just an example of some of the the pieces of legislation that we're focusing on to pass to try to improve the civil rights of muslims and also communities of color and immigrants yeah totally and it's like when there's more eyes on it and there's more people involved it's easier to at least get some traction and i know that's a large part of what you do and i'm curious like What are some of the barriers that you face in getting people more involved and more engaged in these issues, whether it's people in Congress, whether, you know, it's young people? What what do you see the most? So I think for young people or people who've never advocated before, there is kind of a learning curve that they face. And there's also some bit of jadedness where people think that their voice really doesn't matter, that they're just one vote or you know, their member doesn't care at all. I'm from Texas. I totally understand what you're talking about. (laughs) I I don't always feel like my representatives represent my views. So I, you know, but I still go and I still vote Mm -hmm. because really that's what a democracy is. And that's the only way we really can express our opinions and our voice is through through voting and advocacy. So that's what I really try to teach people is you can make an impact. I, I, I give examples in our trainings where people, for instance, did amazing work on the Hill working for healthcare policy. It was under President Trump where they were trying to re- repeal Obamacare. And so many people advocated at local, state, federal level and had such huge campaigns on the Hill where we saw these videos of people protesting and it worked. I mean, that is a success, right? So it's not to say that change can never happen. It is difficult, but I think motivating people and encouraging them to get involved is the important thing. And it's actually that apathy that allows the continual, you know, the status quo to continue. So that's why it's so important to change that by getting involved, voting, writing to your member, advocating, and also voting people into office that do represent your yeah. views. I think when it comes on the member of Congress side or the elected official side, I think what I alluded to earlier, where there's a lack of accountability from their constituents to make good policy is a reason why they are able to continue doing what they're doing, because they know that nobody is going to stop them or vote them out of office or they're in a safe district. 
And that's not okay. We should start holding people accountable. If you're blocking democracy or you're blocking civil rights, then you really shouldn't be in office because that's the whole point of you being in office. So we, we really should be holding them accountable. And I think that is why it's so important for people to get engaged. So I think really helping people understand that and I, I mean, I get it. I understand people who are apathetic and they don't feel like things will change. But we have examples in our history where we look at civil rights legislation and people power and how they made that happen. Yeah. And you know, we have no choice but to try. Totally. And we're in such like an age of like instant gratification, too. And so something we always try to hammer home is that like it's the long game. Yeah. And the more you chip away at these issues, like that's when progress really comes and it's going to take losses to get there. So that's something we always try to like push through, especially with those like kind of apathetic, that apathetic group of people who like think there can't be change. But mm-hmm. looking kind of to polygon what you guys hope to tackle this year is there any like initiatives that our listeners can get involved in and also like in such a huge election year we always like to ask all of our guests like any tips especially regarding this issue that our listeners can can take as voters to kind of vet some candidates and make sure we're electing people that will help push along this issue yeah so definitely vote i think that's the most important whether it's the midterm elections or whether it's the presidential elections i think some people only think that when it comes to every four years and that we vote for the president, that's the only election, but actually local elections make a huge impact when it comes to the type of education students receive. I mean, we see that now with all of the critical race theory stuff and that's all local uh, and state education right there. So getting involved with that is important. When we think about things like climate change, which are a longer term impact, so many things depend on your vote and your voice. So I would encourage them to do that. As far as the issues that we're working on and how you can get involved. So I mentioned some of the bills that we're working on. I think democracy reform is a really, really important one in making sure that people have access to the ballot. And so making sure that these anti-voter laws that we're seeing in states across the country are not successful, that, you know, that people are allowed to stand in line for however long and give them water or all the different things that they're using to block people from expressing their vote are stopped. So I think that's something that we would really love support on, as well as continuing to work on our, you know, immigration and civil rights bills like the No Ban Act, Keeping Our Promise Act, Lift the Bar Act. And then, you know, we're working on, as I mentioned, the the Ilhan Omar and Schakowsky bill, which is the Combating International Islamophobia Act. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of different things, depending on what you're interested in. But I think the most important thing is just to get out there, get engaged and move beyond voting. So that's kind of what we tell people is like, okay, you voted. Now what? How are you going to hold people accountable? How are you going to ask them what they're up to? Are you subscribed to their Twitter? Do you get their newsletter? I still get my member of Congress's newsletter um, back from, you know, my hometown in in Texas, and I know what he's up to. Like and super what, dry and boring, what, but <laughs> what he likes to keep his interesting. Though he has some okay. videos. Some people are probably, hopefully, are making them better. Yes, but I know yeah, mine yeah, is, yeah. ain't it? And now Nancy <laughs> Pelosi's those my newsletters are red. Oh, she is okay. Yeah. They're red because I, when I worked on the Hill, I remember we would get the numbers, and this was around COVID time. Every like thousands of people were opening the newsletter, so it's important. It's yeah. important information to know what's going on, what services are provided. So. Yeah, those are some of the ways that you can get engaged. And I think for us, you know, following us on our social media and retweeting our work and and sharing our events and things like that are really important, too, to help just spread the word and get more people involved. Yeah, well, that's what we're going to ask. Can you tell us where everyone can, like, learn more and follow you guys? 
Yeah, so our website is polygonnational.org. You can sign up for our mailing list there and that weekly newsletter that comes out called Hill Happening. So no matter what, if you're interested in these types of issues or social justice issues, I would recommend you sign up for that newsletter because it kind of covers all of them and you get it every week and very digestible. You don't have to watch the news for hours and hours to figure out what's going on. We just do all the work for you. So definitely sign up for that. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter as well at Polygon National. And what else? We're not on TikTok yet, but maybe we will be at some point. Get on there. I feel like our new staff, you know, as they, you know, they're more into that. So all the power to them. I kind of stop at reels, but you know, if they want to, if they want to do that. I honestly. Yeah. And then I don't know if anyone's still on Facebook, but we have a Facebook page as well that you can follow and get updates. Yeah. Yes. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a great conversation and so um, enlightening and everything. So everyone go check out Polygon and thanks again. Thank you. Top stories of the week. We have a few for you. And one of them is actually an explainer because we are here to explain what law critics have dubbed Don't Say Gay, the bill coming out of Florida that we've touched on um, in previous episodes, but let's get into kind of like what it really is and what it'll do. And so Florida has come under intense national scrutiny, as they fucking should be, over legislation Amen. that critics have labeled the Don't Say Gay law. So it's GOP legislation, which, of course, shitty-ass, little-ass, loser Republican <laughs> Governor Ron DeSantis. Do we have a name for him? I forget. Oh, uh, the- We had Dick Santis working. Dick Santis. Dictator yeah. Santis. But I think Dick yeah. Santis is, like, a little bit better. So, look, guys, mm-hmm. if you if you think of one and you're little like... Little Dick Santis. No, I just want to make sure we Dickie. add little. Little. Micro? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure. It doesn't, um, it doesn't roll off the tongue as well. Okay, anyways, moving back. It doesn't, but we, we get the point. He sucks. And he signed into law Monday. Um, it's basically a, a bill that bars instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through third grade. And so Republicans are arguing that parents should broach these subjects with children. And Democrats have said the law demonizes LGBTQ people by excluding them from classroom lessons. So... Let's get into what what the law does. So the law's central language reads, classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through three, through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. And during this bill signing ceremony, Dick Santis presented an example of what he considers inappropriate teaching material for young students. Um, and it's a poster containing a drawing of the gender-bred person, that's in quotes, developed to help students learn about and distinguish between anatomical sex, gender expression, gender identity, and sexual attraction, and romantic attraction. And so Governor DeSantis said this is trying to sow doubt in kids about their gender identity. <laughs> it's trying to say that they can be whatever they want to be. Of course they can. <laughs> the fact that you literally are like, against just... kids being whoever they want to be is you're the devil. He said this is inappropriate for kindergartners and first graders and second graders. Parents do not want this going on in their schools. I not to point a loophole out because obviously this is heinous. Do not do not stand this. But 
What if, like, they skipped right over preschool? So, um, like... So, it's allowed in preschool. Let's make sure. <laughs> That's the loophole yeah, so, that you're asked. Like, if I'm a fourth grade teacher, the curriculum's going to be gay pride till we die. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just the internalized homophobia coming from Dick, Dick Santos is mm-hmm. unparalleled and... It just makes you think. Usually, majority of men who do think yeah. this way. He has his closeted moments, I'm sure. That's usually yeah. a lot of the dynamics at play. I feel like when we do, when you know, homophobia is really broken down, and especially in such an egregious way like this. Like, I don't see Governor DeSantis being some devout like Christian, God worshiping man either. You know, it's like, where is this really? Where is this coming from? It just makes you think. Well, it's also like yeah. what comes, what makes you hate so much, right? Like, and I feel like people hate, like, hate comes from like something personal. I like personal, to think. Totally. I don't yeah. like to think. I'm like, more like. Hate totally otherwise... comes from something personal or, yeah, something you went through or the way you were raised or whatever. But well, also, I guess with him too, we're like, praying to mention, it's like obviously beneficial in for him in a political way, feeding to a certain base of people that like prop him up to like put him in position to be a Republican slash GOP contender for like 2024 and like totally it's super, super but it just feeds into well. the fact that like he's like such an asshole dick whatever because yeah it just goes to show it's like regardless of his particular views like he is pulling his personal bullshit over the views and the like livelihoods and like yeah day-to-day of like his actual constituents and what they want and what they need in a representative and i feel like a good representative looks at who they literally represent and go okay what do they want i'm here to represent and make sure the goals and the policies and the objectives that they yeah. want in place happen and instead it's very it's not much, about him yeah no and it's and this whole thing is very this much quote is, about his this, own goals totally and this quote is crazy and i think ties into just that maybe personal resentment and bitterness he has inside of him for him to say it's trying to say that they can be whatever they want to be why can't Bingo. is that maybe because you can't be who you want to be sir i don't know but right? that that quote alone is so so it, like telling. hurts my heart so much. It's like, of course they can be whoever they want to be. Like, is if you're not hurting anybody or yourself, you can be whoever you want to be and do what you want to do. But even too, it's just such a weird thing because okay, let's boil this down to like very surfacey stuff. Like when you go to kindergarten and they're like teaching you about like careers and it's like you know they give you the classics right like you can when you grow up you can be anything you want you can be an astronaut you can be a firefighter you can be like in blues clues i don't know why that's the thing that comes to mind but regardless (laughs) they give you like sort of that approach like it is the you can be whoever you want to be and Mm -hmm. that applies to more than just like sexual orientation gender identity etc so the way he's saying this why does it stop here yeah. 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 If you're promoting it for careers or like your aspirations, like why does it stop there? Like why can't it be comprehensive of you as a human being and who you want to present yourself as or who you want to be to the world? But I also, it's interesting too because I wasn't taught anything 
about sexual orientation during this age. And it's like also just hilarious that he thinks that was going to do anything to prevent people from, you know, being their true authentic selves. It's like our generation wasn't, I mean, I, I at least did not get that education of like being taught about gender expression and sexual identity and all of that at that age. So it's like clearly our generation like didn't have that, but we're still out here being ourselves. And so what does he really think this is going to do? It's just pure hate. It's pure hate. It is also kind of interesting that some of these laws like this are coming into place in a day and age in which we have social media and just generally like digital media where information can travel so quickly. So like, even if you are in Florida, that doesn't stop you from, you know, even being, you know, a third grader on your mom's iPhone, finding, yeah. reading XYZ information or. But it really, it proves that it just really comes down to like, I'm sure he knows that this isn't going to like really stop people right. from being right. gay. It just shows, it's just like proves the point of like, it's pure hate and it's pure politics. And it's, he thinks that's yeah. what's going to work for him with this base that is he's starting to grow on and potentially be a real contender in for 2024 or whatever. So, and that's what I think we're seeing too, like across the country with all of these really, really scary state bills, be it abortion or, you know, attacks on LGBTQ plus people or whatever it is. Like, it really is, I think, just just that notion of like feeding to the space and trying to like set up this like other Trump era I feel like they're trying to like make it come back or something I don't even know but well alas our our rantings aside and commentary aside advocacy groups and Democrats have hinted at taking legal action but nothing has yet materialized granted this has just been signed into law so we will see for sure U.S. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona on Monday said his agency will be monitoring this law upon implementation to evaluate whether it violates federal civil rights law said students or parents who believe they're experiencing discrimination in school can file complaints with federal officials. So I'm personally very, very curious as Mm -hmm. to how sort of that operates, where that goes. Curious how many lawsuits get thrown in there. Definitely something to watch regardless. This shit ain't right. However, if you also want some more opine and also background as to Florida politics, may we recommend our episode with Congressman Christ, who is the former mm-hmm. governor of Florida and is also running again to try and get DeSantis out the door. He used to be a Republican, switched parties, like was a Republican while he was in office as governor of Florida, switched off, or not switched off, so sorry, switched parties to be a Democrat. When he and hugged also, Barack Obama. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. I mean, look. He tells us the story of it. He hugs Barack Obama and switches parties. <laughs> it's okay, the cutest thing you'll ever hear. <laughs> no, but like seriously, it is adorable and I love him and it's great. So go listen. So check what it are you waiting for? That's a great yeah. point. Yes. And he talks a lot about just kind of all the craziness that's happening in Florida and with this governor and how if you are a Florida resident, you should vote for him <laughs> instead. Um, okay. Next story kind of got me excited on this Tuesday morning afternoon, and that's Trump likely committed crimes related to an election, says a judge. So a federal judge on Monday asserted it is more likely than not that former President Donald Trump committed crimes in his attempt to stop the certification of the 2020 election. Whoa, really? Wow. 
But they are releasing more than 100 emails from Trump advisor John Eastman to the committee investigating the insurrection as the U.S. at the U.S. Capitol, aka January 6th. And the ruling by the U.S. District Court Judge David Carter marked a major legal win for the House panel as it looks to correspondence from Eastman, the lawyer who is consulting with Trump as he attempted to overturn the presidential election. And Carter said... Mm -hmm. Quote, based on the evidence, the court finds it more likely than not that President Trump corruptly attempted to obstruct the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2021. And the March 3rd filing from the committee was their most formal, Texas included, effort to link the former president to a federal crime. Okay, sorry guys. Anyways, lawmakers do not have the power to bring criminal charges on their own and can only make a referral to the Justice Department. The department has been investigating last year's riot, but has not given any indication that it is considering seeking charges against Trump. I the think that's an interesting in- point, too, in, like, educational moment, mm. that, like, these investigative committees in, in the House, like, I think probably people are confused about, like, how that works. Like, does that mean, you know, Trump's going to go to jail? Or, like, is this a court hearing? Like, you know, how it's kind of confusing that they're investigating this in the house. Like, what can they actually do with what they find? So this is a good little moment. A little congressional teaching moment that they don't have the power to bring criminal charges, but they can do this investigative committee panel and then make the referral to the Justice Department. So quick little educational I moment. Mean, we love to see it. The committee argued in the court documents that Trump and his associates engaged in a criminal conspiracy to prevent Congress from certifying Democrat Joe Biden's victory in the Electoral College. Trump and those working with him then spread false information about the outcome of this presidential election and pressured state officials to overturn the results, potentially violating multiple federal laws, the panel said. The trove of documents, the nine-member, nine-member panel has publicly released so far, which includes some emails, back to those emails already retrieved from Eastman, offers an early look at some of the panel's likely conclusions, which are expected to be submitted in the coming months. Can't wait. The committee says, as interviewed more than 650 witnesses, that's almost as many comments as we have on our latest TikTok, as it investigates the violent siege by Trump supporters, the worst attack on the Capitol in more than two centuries. <gasps> a while. Wow. A while. Super interesting. Oh my God, there's a guy across the street <laughs> from me that looks exactly like Joe Biden. <laughs> <Shook>. <laughs> Joe? <laughs> Joe, is that you? Wait, like, actually fully. I might need to take a picture just for just for the content. Oh, my God. I'm here for it. You can't see him very well. Doppelganger. Wow. wow. Okay. Um, anyways, what was I going to say about this? So, I guess the house is coming to their conclusions. Coming months, right? Synopsis here. And they'll submit to the Justice Department. And... Maybe um, our 2021 New Year's resolution that Trump will be in prison will actually come to fruition in 2022. Probably not, but who knows? Who knows? I have two comments on that. Comment sure. one. I was listening to The Daily, obviously, and one of the recent episodes was talking about oligarchs, which we also covered in one of our Ukraine episodes. BT-dubs, go check it out. But this one was talking about specifically money laundering and sanctions and like whether investigations towards these types of things against like billionaires, like really powerful people actually like do anything, like are they ever held accountable and like how rare that is. And it just makes me 
think that even if they find the right things here, we may be in that position. Not to like be the negative man. So that's thing one. Thing two, and this is like a reminder for us, and that is that one of our merch pieces was supposed to be we'll keep you updated. Mm. And that just reminded me because this is a very good example of we'll keep you updated. So wait, that's that's for sure gonna be a merch piece. Anyways, um, last story is Biden's budget plan. So basically, here we are looking at President Biden announcing a budget blueprint that calls for higher taxes on the wealthy, lower federal deficits, and more money for police, and greater funding for education, public health, and housing. Interesting jumble of things there. So appearing at the White House with his budget director, Shalonda Young, Biden said the proposal sends a clear message to the public about, quote, what we value. He outlined a focus on fiscal responsibility, safety, and security, and investments to build a better America. And the document essentially tries to tell voters what a diverse and at times fractured Democratic Party um, stands for ahead of these midterm elections that could decide whether Congress remains under the party's control. And the bottom line here is Biden is proposing a total of $5.8 trillion in federal spending in fiscal 2023, which begins in October. The 2023 is the craziest number to me. I feel like we said that about 2022, but wow. But anyways, that fiscal year begins in October, slightly less than what was projected to be spent this year before the supplemental spending bill that was signed to law this month. And so the deficit would be $1.15 trillion. And the Biden administration looked at a tax increase last year that resembles the 20% minimum on the full income of people worth $100 million or more. But Manchin nixed that idea as divisive. Fucking Manchin. <laughs> like, how? So how? Like, how? literally. That's, they're the 1%. How is that divisive? Gotta go. But it's um, also anyways. not even, like, it's not one of those scenarios. Like, I really understand if you are making 500000 like, as a family unit, 600000 a year, depending on where you, you live. Like, living in New York City, for example, in San Francisco, there are costs of living that make certain salaries while they may be immense in contrast to other places in the country where, yeah, it, I see where an increased tax could be potentially detrimental or impactful. However, $100 million? $100 million. Like, you're chilling no matter where device you're Device of my ass. Yeah. Totally. You're chilling. Chilling on a little yacht. With a little yeah. drink and an umbrella in said drink. La, la, la. Totally. Absolutely wild. And so what the Biden administration outlined on Monday, it would raise $361 billion over 10 years and apply to the top, oh, it's 0.01% of households. It's not even mm. 1%. And so the proposal lists another $1.4 trillion in revenue raised over the next decade through their tax exchanges. So... Among the tax changes is a 28% corporate tax rate and top individual rate of 39.6%, both increases. Sam and I, both of our brains are about to explode with these numbers, but it's okay. Mm. And I would like to take this opportunity yet again to plug a different episode of ours. And that episode is with Congressman Swazi, Mm -hmm. who is on the Ways and Means Committee, which if you've listened to that episode already, you know that deals with taxation. If you haven't, this is your hint to go listen to it because... He very much talks about the 
corporate tax rate, where it's been previously, what it was negotiated down to, where he sort of thinks it should be, but also just in general, how ways and means works, taxation in the US, taxation in states, how to sort of fix what's going on right now. Definitely go listen to that. P.S. He is also running for governor in New York State. So if you are a New Yorker and you're just curious, general, like, okay, what's the deal with this race coming up this fall? Mm-hmm. Another thing to listen to. Check it but out. Anyways. Check, check it out. I like how I'm faking I have the microphone in my hand, but it's like literally just sitting there. And instead, I'm like. <laughs> we need to get the handheld mics for sure. I know. Ugh. Adds to budget. Speaking <laughs> of budgets, the. <laughs> The plan is a forecast that the economy will return to normal next year after the unprecedented spending tied to the end, to the pandemic and inflation. The budget forecasts 4.7% inflation this year and 2.3% in 2023, which be down 7% in 2021. Okay, I've stopped listening to myself at this point, so <laughs> we'll, we'll roll it up because that was a lot of numbers and... Well, yeah. yeah. Anyways, like we said, go back and listen to our episode with Congressman Swazi. It's a really, really fun episode, too. We had such a great time chatting with him and getting to understand taxation in the U.S., how it works, and all of that good stuff. This is another thing we'll keep you updated on in terms of where it actually lands, the budget itself. But I think one thing to just, like, throw, I don't know, a hat in the ring on, opinion-wise, is I did see this opine. So sorry, I'm blanking on who it was from. But they were talking about how this budget being proposed and being released and its concept of trying to put Democrats in like a very good spot for the midterms is actually just such baloney because this thing, this whole concept is so complex. Like thinking about a budget and like what's actually included, where does it come from, what does it do? Like it's just confusing. It doesn't like pacify anything. It doesn't help any issue. Like if they want to do something, this is again very now my specific opinion, they want to do something that gets Democrats excited and out for the midterm elections. Cancel student debt. Do something that like protects women's rights. Like there's so many things that could be very yeah. distinctly and simply explained and done. And while obviously this budget could do a lot of great things when implemented, the way that it's marketed, as we say, is just too mm-hmm. confusing. This is way too convoluted. Too to confusing. Be like, oh yeah, I'm so engaged. I'm yeah. ready to go to the polls. Like no, totally. Like these it. big budget bills. Like I get it. Like legislatively, I get it. But most, yeah, most people don't understand like what these big budget bills do or how and how quickly they're implemented and how quickly you even experience them. If the plan is to, you know, market Democrats better for this 2022 midterms, like, it does have to be, like, executive actions. Where the fuck have the executive actions been? Like, I get it. Like, if he's trying to, like, steer away and go a more bipartisan route, but it's like he's just shooting himself in the foot. And it's like this is another, I think, moment of, like, Democrats trying to, like, take this higher ground that's ultimately just, like, hurting them because Republicans would never do that. Like, Trump did so many executive orders because Obama did them. And now it's like, it's just a cycle. I feel like obviously the more you can not do an executive orders and pass things through the house, like the more concrete they are and executive orders can be turned over pretty quickly. So like, I get that. But at this point, there are so many things and campaign promises that can be done in executive actions that like have not been. But nonetheless, I also wanted to say something here in California, mm. Gavin Newsom is proposing $11 billion in a California tax rebate to offset high gas prices. So um, he literally was going to give people with 
if you have one registered car, it's like two per household. You can get $800, $800 max, but you can get $400. Like they'll send you like a debit card of $400 for your car for gas. So he is negotiating a final deal with the legislator. So if this is something that you feel like you need, I mean, I'm literally looking at the gas station across from my house right now and it's like over $6 um, a gallon, which is just absolutely bonkers. And so if this is something that is affecting you and you're in California and you would like to see this happen, then you should reach out to your state reps. So that's going to be your state assembly and state senators who are in negotiations with Gavin Gavin Newsom right now to pass this and potentially get $400 like in your hand for gas. So let us know if you have questions on that or if you have questions on like how to reach out to your state reps and to even find out who they are, let us know. But that is in the works in California. So that's pretty exciting. And I was like, I absolutely need this. So please. Um, Amen. Yeah. But that is it for this week. Reminder on some housekeeping items. Sign up for Break the Love. There's no requirements and there's nothing happening yet. So if you go sign up, then you will be notified whenever we get an event going. So go sign up for now. Link in our episode description. What's also in our episode description is the uh, link to go get your four wines for $29.95 if you're 21 and over. And then brand ambassador program, no requirements there, resume boosters, opportunities, continuing the political conversation and an important election year, what more would you want? Go to growonthegup.com to learn about that and sign up. And then if you are looking for an internship for the summer or fall and are, can get college credit, then go check out our internship at growonthegup.com slash careers. Is that everything? I think that's everything. Have a lovely rest of your week. DM us all your political questions and we'll see you next Wednesday. Hey guys, popping in with a reminder to sign up for the GovHub newsletter. This weekly pop of politics is designed to share action items, resources, and quick links to civic engagement tools and topics directly to your inbox. Save it, share it, and sign up for a pinch of productive politics today by going to girlinthegov.com or visiting this episode's description.